Welcome to the View in Your Mirror podcast. We are your hosts, Lisa Rubin and Katie Harms. From new moves to tried and true strategies, we'll dissect the ways in which clothing and a little organization can and does affect your daily life. Come along as we hope to inspire, engage, and shape your rituals as well as your shapewear. For this podcast, we introduce a new sponsor, and that is Renee Keller Interior Design. And Renee has been a guest on our podcast before. So if people want to learn a little bit more about Renee, they can go to that podcast episode. But let's hear a little snippet from Renee. So excited to have a minute with Renee Keller from Renee Keller Interior Design. Renee, what is a good reason why someone should look at having a qualified interior designer working on their project? Well, Katie, one of the main reasons is that we can save you time and money and overwhelmed feelings. There's an awful lot that goes into putting a project together, isn't there? There absolutely is. There is a lot of communication, documentation, and a lot of decisions that need to be made. Now, what about if a person really feels like they want their style to come through? What we do is we have a questionnaire that we have our clients fill out, and we actually have a kickoff meeting, and we get to know the clients. We learn a a lot about the space that they're planning and we like to hear about what each space is going to be used for and why. One of your favorite words is joy. Yes. <laughs> you bring joy to the projects that you work on. Yes. Joy to me is family, is your surroundings and for me if you don't have joy you don't have life. If people want to get a hold of you to bring joy into their home, how do they do that? They would connect with us uh, via ReneeKeller.com, R-E-N-A-E-K-E-L-L-E-R.com. Good talk, Renee. Thanks, Katie. Hey, Lisa Rubin. Katie Harms. This is a special podcast. This is a very special podcast and one that I was very excited to have her as a guest, but also do the subject because... I wasn't expecting to have this subject on our podcast. Another view in our mirror, right? Yeah, isn't that the truth? It's actually the most important view. It absolutely is. And you've been friends with Pat for how long? A long time. I mean, we're talking about Pat Miles, of course, has been. I've been friends with Pat. Well, I started out helping Pat years and years and years ago, and um, it turned into a friendship too. And I'm just so proud of her. She's done a remarkable job on this book. That she has. So you said people don't want to pick up a book a book about death. Talk about that for a minute. Your thoughts on that. Well, I just think that, you know, when people want to take the time to read something, because we're all busy with busy schedules, and most people want to pick up a book to relax, to let their mind go, picking up a book about death, so to speak, is not a book that people would want to jump to when they're getting in bed at night and want to read a little bit and go to sleep, right? But this particular book that Pat wrote, I think is a book that doesn't give you the anxiety and, and it, 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 it gets your mind thinking and it's thought provoking. And it's done in such a positive way, even though Pat wrote this book from a negative, very, she was grieving, she was angry, she was all of those things how she wrote the book has the reader think of it in more of a positive way and more practical. And I just think it's fantastic. I couldn't agree more. We talk about this all the time. It really is how people handle 
the difficult times that really tell their character. And we've known Pat through our TVs for years, right? And for being a big name and a celebrity in Minnesota, this, because of that heartache, is going to be the biggest gift that she could possibly give. To so many, to so Mm -hmm. many people, because every person that will pick up this book, whether you read it, whether you listen to it, however you're going to get the information, something that she told you is going to resonate with you and it's going to help you for anyone that's involved in your life. And you know, Katie, you and I talked last week when we were together and I made a joke, right? I mean, how about people that are a group and run a small business or you and I have a podcast together? You have your roles. I have my roles. But she talks about passwords and things like that. You handle a lot of those things, right? I trust you. You do a great job. And I looked at you and I said, you know, Katie, I should probably have your passwords. No, you're not family. No, we're not married. But we have a business together. And there's lies the same problem. It's not like your family is going to be able to help me with that. So I think it goes beyond just family members. And we're going to talk to Pat today about some of the things that she talks about. One of them is the big one, the intention letter. I also think that people that run businesses together need to write each other an intention letter. Because if one person should pass, it's all written down. That's a great idea. See, now I didn't even think about it to that level, but you're right. I, what I love, well, first of all, what I, what I love about our relationship is the ability to ask the questions, have difficult conversations, wrangle about things and come out the better for it on both ends. And both of us have this true passion for continued lifelong learning. That's a, that's a gift that you give to me every single time we talk. The biggest takeaway, even from that is Pat talks about this extensively is just because you think you're comfortable in something or just because you think somebody's taking care of something does not mean that they actually are. You have to advocate for yourself in all things, asking the questions, making sure you have the knowledge, making sure you're understanding it as much as you possibly can, even though it's difficult because there might be Maybe you didn't pay your bills or handle your finances all the way through your marriage. And now maybe you've been in a marriage for 30 some years and you're coming up to your husband saying, hey, I want to know how all this stuff works. Or you're coming up to your wife or you're coming up to your partner saying, I want to know how all this works. Not because I think you're going to drop dead tomorrow, just because guess what? These are things that I need to know. These are important conversations to have while you are among the living and you can use your discernment and your ability to understand to have the conversations now before you're in any kind of a stressful situation. Yes, I agree. And, you know, sometimes I'll say something to my kids, you know, like, for example, when you take a big trip and you say, you know, this is in this drawer and this is here and this is there. And your kids will go, mom, don't be oh, so come morbid. On. Yeah. You'll be yeah. just fine. Yeah. But I think that this is also a book that we can gift to our children. And if they're willing to read it or listen to it, I think it's going to set them up as they become 
older and have their families and become have bigger families that they can take care of things that they would never have thought about and maybe do it in a more positive way. So I, one of the things I really love about this book is that it's really written for any age. Absolutely. And to that point, shouldn't it be easier to talk about all these things when you are early in your relationships before all of the time and energy is put into raising your family and all of that? Obviously, you want to revisit these things, right? As you go along, but having that framework set up earlier makes so much sense. I think back, you know, one of the things that we really instilled in our kids early on was they need to have a financial planner, somebody to help them really talk about their goals and all of that. And it's kind of the same thing. They're like, retirement, we're talking about retirement in our late 20s, you know, and now as they're aging, it becomes more realistic. Oh, I see how that works. And I see how that's growing and so on and so forth. And actually, um, our oldest daughter is in the medical profession, and she has really gone through this process with their uh, wills and things like that. And she is the person that is like, all right, you need to have your passwords, we need to have do you have a, a living will? Do you have a health directive, all of these things. So And we have had the conversation with our uh, trust attorney, with all of our kids on the call asking questions. But in my mind, that is a gift we give to our children. That is a gift we give to those that are left behind, that this is one thing that they don't have to worry about upon our death. Now, I'm going to tell you the story about a friend of mine. I've had lunch with her a couple of times in the past couple of weeks. And she said to me, have you read Pat Miles' book. I'm so impressed. And I said, well, interestingly enough, we're going to be having her on the podcast. But she and her husband, upon talking about for for the last year and a half, really, and it probably started during COVID and probably started after losing her parents too, that she and her husband sat down and started to really assess their life and what they wanted these you know, years, they're in their 60s, what they wanted the next years to look like, and what they wanted the gifts that they gave to their children to look like, both financially, but also as you look around your home, and you see things that you have, and how do you divide those up? And how what does that look like? And so they started a project a couple hours here, a couple hours there, took them a year and a half, and they photographed their artwork and their things that they had not that had some of it had value right from a monetary standpoint but it really brought them along discussions of where they bought it and what they were doing when they got it and the point that they were at in their life and how long they had been married and so it became a labor of love to put this all together and they wrote their intention letter and they they did all of this and they have these beautifully put together books that will go to the kids. And it seems like a lot, and it was a lot, but what it became for them is almost a reaffirmation. And life goes by in the blink of an eye. We we talk about it all the time. I mean, you remember when your kids were little or something will trigger that. And it's like, wow, that was just like yesterday. And this gave them that opportunity to sit and, and, be in those moments of their lives again, and almost recommit 
And I know one of the things that happens, we hear it all the time with retired people is, oh, you have to figure out, do you still like each other after someone retires, right? So this process took care of all that. They planned their funeral right down to the flowers they wanted, right down to what they want read and all of those things. And as morbid as it might sound to people, to me, it is the ultimate gift because then when that time comes for the remaining spouse to have passed, what's left is the ability to actually mourn without having to worry about what needs to be done. Which is what Pat talks about in her book. Exactly. But I had never seen anything to this extent. I had not seen it, you know, and having read Pat's book and still reading because, you know, you can go back and go, now, what did she say about that? That's really interesting. It is to look at that process and to know that somebody did that and really took the time while perfectly healthy, no issues whatsoever to say, this is something we want to work on over time. That leads to the question, Katie, do you ever think about what do you want your legacy to be? Like when you're gone, if you can come back and tell everybody, because you maybe didn't do it while you were alive, right? That's part of this book is what would you want on your tombstone? What would you want people to say about you after you're gone? I've thought about that since my, throughout my whole adult life. Some, you know, maybe when I was kind of later in high school, all the way through. So I'm very intentional about certain things I do because when I'm gone, what are people going to not say about me, but what did I leave? What did I teach people? What, what did they learn from me? Have you ever thought of sitting and writing your own obituary? Uh, Not yet. No, I don't think the obituary is really the important part. I would tell you that maybe something that you had on your tombstone or something that you maybe wrote to your family or your letter, your letter of intent, the letter of intent. I mean, that's basically what that is. But, but then you want to know what, you know, if you could go up to somebody and say, you know, what have you learned from me? You know, if I can get lucky and live to be a ripe old age, you know, I would love to ask those questions, right? I suppose it really doesn't matter at what age, but no, exactly. It's just you, 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 you've read my mind. Why do you have to be a ripe, ripe old age? I think, you know, there's a process that people will go through when they're maybe changing jobs or careers or going through a, a process with a life coach, and they will be given the assignment to reach out to a number of acquaintances, friends, colleagues, whatnot, to ask them who they are and what they've meant to them. It's an interesting process. Yeah, because and it's, I wonder sometimes if it's a little scary to ask somebody, well, what what do you actually think about me? And will you give me what do you think my strengths and weaknesses are? Right? Yeah, you have to be willing to accept what they tell you. And you have to to ask the right people so that they are honest with you. Yes. But I'm always, I'm always honest. So, Right. But, but going back to your legacy of how do you want to be remembered? 
I think that's an interesting thing to sit with. I, I mean, you know, a lot of you're... people think it's money, it's financial. Of course, that's one of them. But for me personally, it's more than that. Oh, yeah. And I've given that a lot of thought. I have. I don't have the answer because every day I'm growing and changing and learning and trying to be a better person, right? So Maybe that's your legacy every day, growing and changing, trying to be a better person. I say this all the time. You've heard this till ad nauseum, Katie. You know, we were all born the same way and we all die the same way. And we all have the same body parts pretty much, right? Male, female. And um, it's what you do in between. It's the dash, right? The date of your birth, the date of your death, and in between is the dash. And with this book that Pat wrote, it's helping you maneuver the dash. <laughs> yeah. And I would say, if anyone's fearful, don't be fearful of this book. It really is done in such a way that is so practical. I will say it's an easy read, mm -hmm. but then I have to come back and go, okay, I got I, I, I to make a note of that. It's almost like when you were in college and you highlighted it, you needed to highlight it. And on that note, before we hear from Pat, let's hear from Continental Diamond. On The View in Your Mirror, we love Continental Diamond. We are excited to talk about this amazing place. It really is special. The minute you walk in the door, you feel the joy coming out of the most amazing staff, many with 20 plus years experience, and all have their hearts and souls into making your experience fantastic. Helene Pessis is the co-owner and head buyer of Continental Diamond. She's a friend of our podcast and has been a guest with us as well. Located just 10 minutes west of downtown Minneapolis, adjacent to the West End with great parking, I promise you, you will not be disappointed. Go into Continental Diamond. With the holidays fast approaching, check their website. They do have some upcoming trunk shows that will be announced, so keep going back to make sure you don't miss them. Continental Diamond, ContinentalDiamond.com. Pat Miles, we are so excited and so happy to have you on. Who? Who knew that we would be excited to talk about death and all that comes from it? <laughs> well, well, you know, it's interesting because um, when I was trying to come up with a title for the book, one of the things I was told over and over and over again was do not put death on the cover of a book, because if somebody sees that word, they're going to not buy the book or they're not going to read the book or they're not going to want to even know about the book. So we, I think, in this culture have such a um, fear of death that we try to avoid it at all costs. So I have really discovered after having done this book and after having, I think, prepared myself for the fact that I am going to die at some point. And by the way, all of us are going to die. But the fact <laughs> that I have prepared myself I think has given me some real peace of mind about it. And I think it's like anything else. If you face your fear and you deal with it, it helps you overcome it. And so this is a really positive thing. I don't think it's a negative thing to talk about death and dying. We're all going to die. We just need to accept that fact and then prepare for it. And then realize that, you know, it's the other side of the coin. There's birth, and then there's death. And there's a lot in between. And we hope that the in between is a long, happy, healthy time, right? I mean, 
a lot of us think we're going to die at the age of 104 in, in our bed asleep. <laughs> well, let's hope that happens. But, you know, the odds of it happening are probably not great. No, they definitely aren't. And how you've approached this and, you know, we talked about in our lead in, I think that you can really tell a lot about a person on what they do when they experience tragedy or a difficult situation and how they handle it. And you, this book is such a gift that you have given and it's come out of your heartache and your tragedy. You could have done what a lot of people do and mourned in silence or mourned with your family and, and gone on and lived your life. But, but you took your, your skill set, your gifts, and gave so many people who are going to read this. I mean, I just think this has to be in every household. <laughs> I just do. Well, I agree with you on that. <laughs> But I, I can't. I can't take a lot of credit. Um, I mean, I wish that, you know, that all of that was true. But I didn't want to write this book. This was not something I wanted to do. I've had a million people ask me, "Well, did it make you? Was it a cathartic experience? Did it help you get through your grief?" The answer to that is no. It didn't. It educated me a lot, and that's the reason I did it because I got so angry that I didn't know what I didn't know. And when I tried to get information, which is the first thing you that I do anyway, um, there wasn't a lot out there. There was no kind of how to be a widow for dummies. There was a lot of uh, books written by women, widows, about their singular experience with grief. And there were a few, you know, handbooks out there about write down your credit card numbers. and But there wasn't anything that, I felt really helped me, you know, it didn't speak to me. So I thought, gosh, I can't be the only one out there who's floundering in this, you know, what I call the grim fog of grief. There have, there's probably a lot of other people. So I started researching and looking for people to talk to and looking for people to interview, which was my skill set when I worked as a journalist. And sure enough, you know, there were a lot of people out there and I only touched on a few of them. Um, who had stories to tell about things that happened to them and what they went through and and how they um, learned a lot of these lessons the hard way. Yeah. You know, I think back to, and you talked about it in the book too, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, and I had never thought about that, but she wrote On Death and Dying, which was very, was a very well-received book. But you made a very important distinction I don't think I ever thought about, and that is she was essentially doing research on dying and the process of dying and the stages of grief. She wasn't coming at it from an experience that she had with it. So she was more clinical. Right. And in talking about the stages of grief, I think what most of us who have lived long enough to go through grief and realize it's not lineal by any stretch of the imagination. And so that was an incredible distinction. Your book. Lisa said it great. What were the words you used, Lisa, to describe I this I said book? it was practical, constructive, positive, and it was, it's, it's a learning experience. I mean, your book to me is, it, it, it can reach any age because all ages 
unfortunately have had to grieve, right? And I think anybody can pick this book up and get something out of it and give them a little bit of, I don't know if it's hope or peace or, um, I don't know. I don't know the right word, but it, it makes you think, but not in a negative way. And death is always thought of in a negative way. I mean, I don't like talking about death. I, and I might say something funny to my kids and they're like, mom, please don't have to be so morbid. But here you can go through this book and you can even pick a chapter. I mean, you can look at your chapters and you could pick a chapter and you can just read that chapter for one time and then pick a different chapter on a different day. So I think the way you wrote this book, Pat, is phenomenal because oh. every single person can benefit from this book, whether you're a man, a woman, a child, a teenager, anyone that can read can benefit from this book. Well, I think one of the things that we need to realize in this culture is that we don't know if we are coming home tonight. None of us know that. And we don't know that if that if we're 32 or 82. We don't know. I mean, my daughter, for example, uh, just had her first baby. I have my first grandson. And ah. she's 35 years old. And they now have a will and a trust. And they have thought about, what if I don't come home tonight? Who's going to take care of that baby? And these are things you need to think about when you are young, as well as when you are old. Because they're a lot of young people I talked to, a few that are in the book, that didn't have a will, that didn't have a trust, that didn't think they needed to worry about that or think about that at that stage of their life. They were young. They just had a baby. You know, the last thing they're thinking about is, boy, we better make sure we have our will and our trust in place. But you do need to do it. It's even more important to do it when you have small children, because none of us know what the future holds. I mean, we'd like to believe that we're going to live a long, very happy and healthy life. And let's hope that we all do. But we don't know that. There is no given that that's going to be the case. So just prepare for it in case it's not. You can always change things and you should change things as you get older and your life changes. But do it now. Do it. And I always say this in every interview I've done. Do it during happy days. During, do it during good times. Because if you don't, you'll end up like Bucky and I did. We, we were in a very much of a crisis, a health crisis. And the last thing we were thinking about was account numbers and passwords and uh, insurance. It, it, we were thinking about trying to keep him alive, trying to get him to the doctor, trying to get chemo, trying to see if it was going to help or work. It, it's not a time that you deal with the practicalities of dying. And let's Pat, just, uh, that leads into a couple questions that you're talking about with Bucky. But when you talk about intention letter, I think that that's something that I want to spend a lot of time on. But when Bucky was passing away, he didn't have an intention letter. And didn't. he probably didn't even have time to have this quiet moment with you to say, Pat, when I die, A, B, C, D, E, right? So when he passed away, you didn't know what his intentions were in a lot of things. I know he was a collector of everything, right? 
and he right. had a lot of stuff in his house. But if he would have had that intention letter, it probably would have been easier and you would have had more humor in getting rid of a lot of the stuff. Is that right. correct? Right. He didn't, we not only didn't have an intention letter, first of all, I didn't know what an intention letter was. I'd never heard of it before. Um, but we were in pretty big denial about the progress of this disease that he had, pancreatic cancer. I mean, he wouldn't even Google it. He didn't want to know. And we just assumed that he was going to live for years. You know, he lived for three months from start to finish. It was three months. And we didn't deal with that fact. We didn't um, acknowledge that that was happening to us. And let me ask you a question here, because how much weight can we put on the way medicine handles these types of diagnoses? And what, what I mean by that is how they don't really do one thing to help you truly prepare. They give you a diagnosis and every doctor wants to cure their patients, right? And to an extent, every, every doctor, you, you could potentially be another person that goes on chemo to see how that affects because it's data. Not that they're uncaring people, but they're really thinking about keeping you alive. Right. Well, they're treating the disease and not the they're person. treating the disease and not the person. But, but it was interesting because I had a lot of time to reflect um, back. And we had an oncologist and the oncologist was, you know, prescribing the chemotherapy and but the oncologist had a young man, and he actually turned out to be from Minnesota, and we were in Arizona at the time where Bucky was being treated. But this young man took a real liking to Bucky, and he was the doctor. He was doing his uh, residency under this oncologist. But he took me aside, and he tried. I think he really tried to say, Pat, why don't you think about hospice? Why don't you think about palliative care? let's, let's think about maybe not doing this chemotherapy because it was, you know, it was killing Bucky too. And it had completely ruined the, the last, you know, month of his life. He couldn't get out of bed. He couldn't think straight. He was in pain. It was, was, it was a nightmare. And I think that young person, and maybe they're trained differently these days, but I think he was trying to treat Bucky the person and say, Hey, like my daughter did, you're fighting a war. You're not going to win. You're not going to win this war. And so instead of getting up every day and fighting this war, let's try to find some peace with and some acceptance about what is happening to you. And, and not just what's happening to Bucky. He was dying. But what's happening to you, Pat, as well? Because it's not just the one person that an illness like this affects. It's a whole family, you know. So I wish now in retrospect, and I do a chapter about that in my book, I do a whole chapter on death doulas of people who use them and, and also death doulas and talk to them about their work and why they do it. But I really wish that I had gone down that road rather than the other road I went down. Um, so, but, you know, one of the things about grief and one of the things about losing someone is you, you have regrets and you have guilt and you have on top of all of the other stuff that you're feeling, you, you ask yourself over and over again, oh, 
What if I had done this? What if I had done that? I wish I could have thought of that. Um, and you have to let yourself off the hook at some point with all of this, but it, it certainly comes with the territory. No kidding. I, I, I found it striking that when you talked, it was your daughter that suggested a death doula. And you said you thought it was maybe some, uh, what did you call it? Millennial, uh, millennial, millennial mumbo jumbo. <laughs> Which I get a lot of from her. And isn't it funny that the tables are turned, right? How many times in life have you tried to tell your kids something and they're like, oh, mom, oh, mom, oh, mom. And then eventually they hear it from somebody else and they go, listen, I learned the neatest thing. And you're like, oh, I've been trying to tell you that for the last 20 years. Well, exactly <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think um, she said I had her write me a letter. I said, I, I want you to write me a letter and I want you to tell me why you suggested a death doula. And she wrote me this beautiful letter and she said, you know, when you get a diagnosis, especially stage four pancreatic cancer diagnosis, your first thought is, oh, well, maybe they'll be able to treat it or maybe they'll come up with something or, you know, you want to have hope. You want to have hope. That's, that's our human condition, right? We want to have hope. And she said, but when I came to see you and Bucky and I saw what was going on, I realized he's not going to get better and he's not going to get well and he's dying. And she said, and so I wanted you to quit denying what was happening and fighting what was the inevitable and maybe find some peace by having somebody who knows about these things to come in and help you with acceptance. And now when I have friends that, that, are in the situation, I really encourage them to do what I didn't do. Actually, this whole book is encouraging people to do what I didn't do or what somebody else didn't do and which is they had a do-over, but there are no do-overs. So do it now. <laughs> right. That's what for sure. Incredible strength to, to do this again, to me, this is a gift. Let's take a quick break. When we come back, I, I want to talk a little bit more about that thought of extending life versus extending suffering. Hang with us. On the Viewing Your Mirror podcast, we love sharing our personal favorites. Rustica Bakery is high on that list and we know you're going to agree. Rustica has two locations. They're original at 3224 West Lake Street in Minneapolis across from Calhoun Commons and Whole Food Market and Southdale Center next to Lifetime, where you'll enter without even going into the mall. Both have ample parking, either online or in-store. Bread, breakfast, dessert, treats, a menu sure to allow you to find a personal favorite in no time. Online ordering is a breeze. Available in-store only are savory menu items. Think grab and go for lunch or enjoy them there. Brunch items are offered Friday through Sunday. RusticaBakery.com. Find the food and drink you adore or try something new. Rustica Bakery puts the love shown by their customers back into every item baked. At Rustica, you're among favorites. Well, I think it's really fun to know that when we take our little break for the commercial, we are laughing and, and having some having some good good chats about uh, living in Lisa's world because she's constantly in my head. <laughs> <laughs> we'll just put that in there. And I know I said we were going to come back talking about extending life and extending suffering. 
But I think Lisa had a much better idea. And coming back, we're going to talk more about the intent letter. Because yes. again, Lisa, you said it perfectly about your thoughts. Well, on I think that letter. the intention letter, which Pat talks about, if you're going to read her book, and I think everyone should, is that that's kind of the biggest brick in her book. And once you read about the intention letter and understand it, you're going to go back and read all the other chapters again. Because I really think that that's something I've never thought of. I've thought about it sort of, but not the way you wrote it in your book. And I think it's an easier way to understand it. And um, you can start writing it and you can keep coming back to it. Mm -hmm. Like, don't have the pressure. Nobody's going to read it but you until you give it to your children to read. Yeah, you can lock it away in a safety deposit box and um, nobody has to see it until you're gone and you're ready to have your kids or your wife or whoever it is read it. But a good friend of mine is a financial planner and he's the one that came up with this idea of an intention letter. And it's not a legally binding document, but what it is, is it, it is a way to leave your legacy for your family. Um, there are probably going to be disputes among family members especially when the uh, patriarch of a family dies and he's been successful and done well. And one of the things that comes up a lot with siblings is, well, dad would want this. No, dad would want that. Well, how do you know dad would want this? It, here's a way for you to know what dad would want. Dad wrote it down in his intention letter. And I use the example that's also in the book about the Minnesota cabin up north. If you're brother thinks he wants to keep it and you want to sell it and you have a disagreement about that well dad would want us to sell it no dad would want us to keep well here's what dad wants um and an example i give his dad says look if you want to sell it you can sell it here's what you can sell it for this is th these are my wishes that you sell it for this amount of money and then you let your brother keep it but you can't use it anymore and that's how i want you, you to settle that dispute. And there can be disputes about the other example is grandma's pie plate. And grandma's pie plate might be worth a dollar, but people go to court over it and fight over it. And it's not really about grandma's pie plate. It's about family issues, family dynamics, and every family has them. I mean, you hope that that doesn't happen. But when someone dies, it becomes a lot about what is left. And many times that's money and people fight over money and dying is a big business and people are in that business to make money. Funeral homes make money. Accountants make money. Estate attorneys make money. Insurance people make money. Everybody's making money. And, um, you know, a lot of people, they deplete the estate What's whatever money is in the estate fighting these wars. And it can be avoided by just simply sitting down and writing an intention letter. And I will tell you, because I have written mine, it is not easy to do. I mean, when you sit down and you put pencil to paper and say, this is what I want. This is what I'm leaving behind and how I want you to deal with it. And this is why I'm making this decision. 
Maybe you're going to give one child more than you're going to give the other child. Explain why so that those two children are not fighting or that one child thinks, well, you loved the other child more. No, you didn't. But one child was more capable, perhaps, of earning more money than that child, or they had a different set of um, skills. But just explain the reasons why you're doing the things you're doing so that you take away all of the turmoil that can come up in families. It's such good advice. It's such good advice. And, and that intention letter then can become the framework for legal documents. It can be, but you know, you, you, in most cases, people have a will and a trust. But, you know, the person who is administering the will and trust doesn't know how you felt, didn't know your feelings. You know, it, they, they're not making decisions based on how they think you would want it to be. But if you write it down, then they can make those decisions based on what you said you want. You know, they actually have a document to go by. And then going back to the fact that you wrote your intention letter when you were a healthy right. woman. Right. I mean, maybe you were you wrote the intention letter while you were writing this book. So, you know, you probably had more input than most. So I then would suggest people to read your book, then go and write their intention letter. Right. Because there are people that talk about it and and doing it. And um, it's a little bit of a guideline as to how to get that done. And if you are married and you both you the wife has an intention letter and the husband or, you know, if two women, two men, whatever it may be. Um, I know you suggested in the book that maybe you share it with one another and that can create conflict, obviously, but better it be conflict when you're alive than when you're not alive because generally one spouse dies before the other, right? But it gives you an opportunity to talk about your wishes with each other. And, you know, I would... There are a lot of people, couples, who just assume that you're going to feel the same way they feel. And when you write these intentions letter and you share them with each other, it's like, well, I didn't know you felt that way. Well, I didn't know that's what you wanted. So you have an opportunity then to have your own discussion and and figure that out. You know, and really, these are conversations that you should have. Yes, that are important to have within a family. You talked about it a little bit especially when young people die and they hadn't gotten past the discussion of what happens to the kids should we both die and so they they you talked about this in your book where they hadn't come to agreement on that so they just set it aside you have to work through those difficult conversations well i i think for young people in particular i don't think it's so much that they don't want to have those conversations. I think it's because they don't think they need to. And that's just part of being young, don't you think? I mean, yeah. we we don't think we're going to fall. We don't think we're going to have a car accident. We don't think all of these things that, you know, later in your life, it's like, gosh, I hope I don't fall down those stairs. I, they're not thinking that way. They're running up those stairs. Um, and so they they don't really think about these conversations because they don't think they need to. But you need to. And do it you know, force yourself to do it, force yourself to do it just in case, just in case, you know, it's like, it's like buying insurance just in case, just in case. Yeah, absolutely. You, I'm going to go back now to the extending life or extending the suffering because um, 
the more we age, the longer we live, there are more cases of cancer or um, much suffering. So you have to decide, are you going to treat that or are you going to choose a different path? And I, I remember probably a year before my mom passed away, she wanted to go see the cardiologist and she had been on so many drugs for this, that, and the other thing. And, and so I brought her to the cardiologist and she said to him, I want to know what I am morally obligated to continue to take, which I thought was so interesting. She was a lifelong Catholic and she felt she thought that if she didn't do what the doctor had suggested her to do, she was in effect taking her life faster than would have needed. But these things made her so ill and he was so kind and basically brought her down to taking two medications. And he said to her, no one knows how many days we have left. So for you to live comfortably in whatever time you have left might be way more important than prolonging and being sick every day of your life. And that was so interesting. And I think oftentimes when people get diagnoses, their first thought is, how, how do we beat this? Or how do we, I'm hearing now more people saying, nope, I'm choosing a different path. Mm -hmm. That gets back to your doula conversation. But what, when you were doing research on this book, did anyone talk about, gosh, I wish we wouldn't have gone the route of throwing everything at it. <laughs> I talk about that <laughs> because, um, Bucky went through a series of chemotherapy treatments and they made him progressively more ill and more debilitated. And when we finally went for the last report and the doctor said, well, the chemotherapy is not working and there's nothing further we can do to help you. Not that that helped us anyway, right? It didn't help yeah. us. But there's nothing more we can do now to help you. And so you need to sign up for hospice. We signed up for hospice on Friday and Bucky died on Sunday. So we didn't have any hospice care, really. You know, he got ex really extraordinarily ill on Saturday night and then died on Sunday morning. I wish that we would have had three months of hospice care because they come in and they, they help you with acceptance and they help you with, you know, being comfortable and they help you with discussions. You know, um, one of the individuals in my book who did use a death doula, the death doula encouraged uh, his partner who was dying to write him a letter and tell him how much he meant to him and to do a video for their children and here's who I was, and here's what I want for you. And they have that. And he he said, these are the most precious things that I have. And I don't have any effect because we didn't face it. We didn't deal with it. We denied it. And we lived in this, you know, bubble of thinking, well, he's going to have at least a year left, at least maybe two years left. He had two days. So don't do that. You know, live your life today 
um, in a way that if you don't come home tonight, it's going to be okay for the people you leave behind. Because the people you leave behind, if they're in a whirlwind mess of financial, legal, social, family problems, they can't grieve you. And you need to have time to grieve. You know, it's been, it'll be three and a half years since Bucky died. The first year I spent dealing with all the just mess, the health and the life insurance, the um, the accounts that I didn't know even existed, much less what the numbers were. Uh, just this mess. I mean, I, I said jokingly to a friend of mine, I spent six months on hold, you know, <laughs> waiting for someone to talk to me who said they can't talk to me. And then if they, well, we need the death certificate and we need this uh, legal document and we need to have the attorney sign. And so that was a year. That was a year of my life. And then the next two years I spent writing this book. And this is going to be my year to grieve because, and if you don't, if you don't walk through that grief, it will come back to haunt you. And it still does to me today because I haven't allowed myself to walk through that pain yet. So that's where I'm at, trying to figure that out, trying to figure out what my life is now. I mean, when someone dies, it's like one of the women in the book said to me, you know, it's like a chalkboard. And on the chalkboard were all the things we were going to do. Uh, cruise to Alaska, dinner with the grandchildren, uh, party at Susie's. And you wake up and that chalkboard has been erased and there's nothing on it. And so now you have to figure out what's going to go up on that chalkboard. and you don't want to have to imagine a new life for yourself. You want to hang on to what you have, but no, it's, it's a, when you lose a spouse, you, you're living a smaller life. It's just a fact. And that doesn't mean it has to be a bad life or it's not as good a life, but it's a smaller life. So I, I, I don't know. Does that make sense? <laughs> but, oh. but I mean, in a, you reinvented yourself, you took your skills and you wrote this book, right? Yes. So now the year that you're taking to grieve, you're also taking this year to share your gift. And maybe that's part of your grieving. I don't know. But I don't, I don't know either. And I, I hope so. I mean, you know, I remember two years ago when I told a friend of mine, I was writing, I wanted to write this book. And she said to me, and people say the dumbest things to you, right? Because they don't know. <laughs> She said to me, do you need the money? I said, oh, do, I need, do I need the money? I said, I doubt this book will sell a, a copy, but if it would help somebody, if it would help even one person, I would feel like I didn't waste my time and like it was a good effort. Um, and so I've been like grateful and truly overwhelmed that people have have actually seemed to embrace this book and the information in it. And I think part of that is because we, I think it's, I think during COVID, I think all of us at, in the very beginning, especially when we didn't know what was going to happen, if we got it, we didn't know if it was going to kill us, if we were, you know, 22 or 82, we just didn't know. That's why we were all hiding out in our houses. Right. But it made us take a look at the fact that we're mortal and that maybe there's a possibility if you get this COVID that it could kill you. I think it was the first time we started to think about that. And so I think that's why this book has kind of resonated because people are now starting 
I think more, I mean, maybe this is wishful thinking, but I think we're starting to think more about how do we prepare ourselves for what is going to be the end. And the acceptance of what other people are going through. I know, you know, you talk about regret and you talk about grieving. It's not linear and you can be all over the place. Right. I, a very dear friend lost her husband. This was several years ago. And she expresses grief so eloquently and does writing and beautiful things. And she's a young woman. She's just now in her fifties. And I remember saying to her, it's maybe time to now get back on the horse. I don't think I use those terms, but I might as well have, which when I even say it now is just so embarrassingly ridiculous that I should have even intimated that I knew what she needed along her grief path. And so you say, people say the stupidest things. I have said the stupidest things. What are some of the things that really helped you that people said to you that kept you going? Mm. Well, I, I want to just touch on what you just said, though, because um, people don't know what to say, right? And grief, right. It, it's almost like I, I felt... a about myself right after Bucky died, like I was on fire and that people didn't want to get too close to that because they might get burned. So they just stayed away or they didn't say anything. You know, they didn't want to get too close to that heat because it hurts. You know, it hurts. And being around people who are hurting is not comfortable and you don't know what to say. And, um, and there's not much you can say. I mean, people say, sorry for your loss. And I've always appreciated that. I'm sorry for my loss too. There's not, there's not much you can say about it, except that, how are you doing today? You know, what do, what are you, what are you doing? And I've, I've been so grateful for the people who have reached out and kept in touch. Um, there's a gentleman who called me the day he found out Bucky was sick. And he called me every single day since. How are you doing? What can I do to help? What do you need? You know, there's not a lot of people that do that. <laughs> and so you will appreciate the ones who do. And um, that's all you can do is just say, hey, I'm here. I'm here. You need me. I'm here. What do you need? How can I, I always I always say that in times like that, you know who your real friends are or, you know, well, the people that you can count on. Yeah. And I don't, you know, Lisa, I don't think it's because somebody's not kind hearted or good hearted or doesn't have great intentions. It's exactly what I said. I mean, there are people that just don't want to get too close to the fire because it can burn, you know, it can feel uncomfortable. I get that. And it's, and I never thought, well, they weren't my friend or I just felt like they don't understand. And I will tell you this too. It's different for women than it is for men. And this is a funny story, but, um, the community where I live in Arizona, it's an older community, right? Retirees, people who've retired and moved here to live uh, in the warm weather. And so there are several widowers and several widows who all live in this community. So I know a widower pretty well, it's a friend of mine, and we have mutual friends, couples who we all see. And when I first got back to Arizona, I I walked in the house and it was like, oh, it feels so empty. And gosh, I maybe I'm going to reach out and see if I can't connect with this couple friend of mine, these, this couple. 
And I called them and I said, oh, what are you guys doing tonight? I just got back in town, uh, you know, walked in the door and was wondering about dinner. And, oh, gosh, we can't tonight. We're having we're having Joe over. Now, Joe's the widower. You know, Joe just got back in town. He's all by himself. You know, and I thought, well, I'll, I'll cook I'll cook dinner for him tonight because we don't want him to be alone. I'm like, oh, okay. But that is the difference between how this culture takes care of men and takes care of women. And it is, it, and again, it's not because they don't care about you or they're not your friend. It's just like, we need to take care of that guy because he can't take care of himself, right? It's just, it, it, it was really kind of eye-opening to me. I That's mean, I never stunning. I never thought about this before, but I, you know, I, I'm sure you could talk to 25 widows and 25 widowers and they would have different stories about hmm. their experience. Hmm. You know, something occurs to me I mean, that's stunning right there. And as women, we tend to always appear that we've got it all figured out, right? And maybe that's a, a little bit of our downfall. Well, I think too, it's our culture. I mean, here's a guy, uh, you know, uh, uh, a gentleman, he's, he's now a widower. The first thing people want to do is fix him up and hook him up and find a new person and get a new wife. That's what it's just our culture. It's, but they're not doing that to the 75 year old woman. Trust me. Hmm. Hmm. It's the world. It's the world we live in. That is very interesting. Well, you're yeah, not, that, you're that not, really is. Not I, I haven't really thought about that. No, but you're not, you're not surprised. Are you? I mean, no, what I'm, saying, I'm not, surprised not surprised at all. No, no, you're right. You're right. That's, that is amazing. We'll have to, well, maybe we can work on that. Well, you'll have to do another <laughs> podcast, right? I'll have to do another podcast. I know, I know. Well, what I don't, I don't want to miss this thought really quickly because if somebody's really questioning, even if they've got everything figured out for their trusts and all of that, I think this book is also very helpful on how to approach your friends who have gone through loss. Yes, yes, yes. And be able to know what to say or how to show up. Yes, I agree with that. And there are a lot of really interesting stories from people who, you know, experience some pretty rough patches with friends and uh, family. And um, I think it does help you to read the stories and, and go, okay, now I hadn't thought about that. Mm -hmm. I get it. Yeah. And for those of us who think everything is set out well, there is always something that can happen, right? And it's not that you want to live your life worried about what can happen, but you said it when we started out, you don't know what you don't know. Right. And you don't have to be worried. You just need to prepare so that you don't have to worry. You know, I, I said the other night um, at one of the book signings, I said, you know, the title of the book before all is said and done, and, and you want to you want to resolve these things before all is said and done so that when all is said and done, you're at peace. Exactly. And the, and the subtitle is practical advice on living and dying. Well, it, it couldn't be said better, really. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. After all is said and done, and you've gone through this process, there are organizations out there that can help. You talk about a couple of them, Soaring Spirits, you talk about in the book, but you also picked for our nonprofit, 
Brighter Days Grief Center. Talk about that a little bit. Well, I, I interviewed the lady who started it, and I would encourage you to read her story uh, in the book. But she's one of those, you know, remarkable, amazing people who took her grief and took her sorrow and and did something extremely positive for other people. And it's just remarkable story, remarkable people. And she's doing some great work uh, in the Twin Cities area. So I would encourage you, um, if you have any, any need for um, some help, to get in contact with them. Yes. And uh, the underlying passion that motivates our team was the dream of building a family-focused grief and wellness center in the Twin Cities. So that gives you a little bit about it. Um, BrighterDaysGriefCenter.org is the link. And we can't thank you enough for being with us and truly for coming on our little podcast. I know you and Lisa have had a friendship for many, many years. Yes. And really the fact that you took the time to be with us is so special to us and we can't thank you enough. Oh, well, I can't thank you enough. And um, you're right. Lisa's been a great friend and uh, I'm just so excited for you guys for this podcast. I think it's wonderful. We're loving it. How do people get a hold of your book? It's on, Am- it's on Amazon. It's supposed to be in Barnes and Noble as well. Um yeah, so it's it's out there. I mean, I guess the easiest way, what everybody does, goes on Amazon, right? But if you're, there are bookstores that also have it, but it's definitely uh, easy to get on Amazon. And, and also on LinkedIn. Yeah, LinkedIn. I think there's a link on LinkedIn. <laughs> Before all is said and done, you can connect with you on LinkedIn. Absolutely. That that way they can also see some of the other things that you're doing with this book. Right. Yes. I also have a Facebook page if you want to join called Before All is Said and Done. Thank you. Pat Miles, thank you for this gift. Thank you. I appreciate it. What an important conversation to have had. I was really looking forward to this. I, I encourage everybody to read her book and you can pick parts to read. You don't have to read the whole thing. It's not a novel. And I think that it will resonate with everybody in some way, no matter what age you are. Before all is said and done, practical advice on living and dying well. All the information on the nonprofit will be on our website, as well as information about how to reach us, theviewinyourmirror.com. We love giving you practical tips and advice on how to live your best life. This is something we never thought we'd be approaching, but is probably the most important thing that you can do for yourself and for your family. We know that the view in your mirror is filled with passion and beauty and all things good and bad. And we hope that you add this important step in your life to continue to make the view in your mirror the best it can possibly be. Until next time. 